Photoshop came out in 1990, and ever since it's been the world's leading image editing software. So much so, it's actually become a verb. This is a photoshopped image. Photoshopping. Photoshopped image. Photoshopping themselves. The number of posts featuring the photoshopped image continue to grow. But as Photoshop and generative AI begin to merge, can we even trust photos anymore? You know, with AI technology and the development of Photoshop and other image editors, we should now assume that there is always already some bit of manipulation to the photo. And I think that's really gonna have repercussions on like even how we view the photo as a medium. From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Today, seeing isn't believing. Photoshop recently unveiled a new function that integrates generative AI, a cutting-edge technology that can produce an image from text. J.D. Swierzynski is a professor of communications and digital studies at the University of Mary Washington. He says we've reached a point where photo manipulation has never been so easy. J.D., you make a distinction between everyday image editing and what you call visual lies. That's the crux of the world of photography and AI that we're in right now, right? Absolutely. I, and it's such a blurry line. And that's, you know, very much what I'm trying to get into right now in this research is this kind of idea of like what we have understood the photo to be. Photos have always been manipulated, but it's it's been very rare. Typically, when we take a photo and we view a photo, we see it as a reflection of reality. And, you know, with AI technology and the development of Photoshop and other image editors, that assumption is increasingly precarious. You know, we we should now assume that there is always already some bit of manipulation and maybe a lot of manipulation to the photo. And I think that's really going to have repercussions on like even how we view the photo as a medium, as a thing, as, you know, is this even an accurate or ever an accurate representation of reality anymore? When did Photoshop appear? And help me understand how big a change that was. Sure. Yeah. So Photoshop developed starting in 1987, 1988, released commercially by Adobe in 1990. And really what it did was it took kind of some existing software, especially like paint software, like Mac Paint, and I think MS Paint was around at that time. Um, and it allowed you to import a photo into that and apply a lot of those painting tools on top of it. So that very first version of Photoshop, it has filters, it has lasso, and it, and it did allow this kind of, I mean, what made it so interesting was it was able to combine this art tool with the photo, right? It kind of put those things next to each other. So obviously, what are you going to do? You're going to want to cut the photo up and lasso it and clone things. And it kind of created this new engagement with the photo that's very much still with us today. I would still argue most of the innovations in terms of how we manipulate the image, how we can alter the image, that might be changing, but it's certainly for the 30 years it's been around, it has been the standard and those, again, trickle down. And a lot of what we end up seeing in you know Snapchat or Facetune or Instagram, and you can trace a pretty direct line in terms of what we're seeing in those editing functions and those filtering functions and what was originally released in Photoshop. So it's got a huge influence beyond itself in that way, beyond just itself as a piece of software. It's completely reshaped kind of how we engage with the photo all over the place, certainly on our smartphones. It was just a few months ago that there was just a huge discussion of chat GPT and what would that do and how would AI change everything and a renewed but seemingly much more urgent discussion of, you know, will we be destroyed as humans by the AI revolution? But what was your moment? Was there a moment when your blood ran cold when it comes to what can we do with images? Yeah, I, I've thought about it in those exact terms as a moment, you know, and I, I think you're very right that with ChatGPT, a lot of people had that, you know, I, I can't say the, the word on radio what it was, but yeah, that oh my God moment, right? Um, yeah. Now, in Photoshop, the one that has been fairly recently released, which has definitely given me pause, is a new feature called uh, Generative Fill AI. And in some ways, it's a little familiar. It's taking what, for those people who've used an image generator like Midjourney or Dali, pretty similar in that you have a text prompt, you type in what you want, and it will generate an image from it. 
So Photoshop took that and built it within the actual function of Photoshop, which that means in practice is I have a photo, say I, I have a photo of my building here on campus, and I can circle a sign, say with the lasso tool, and then that little text-based tool will come up and I say, replace that sign with a fire hydrant. And it'll do that same image generation and just edit that right in. And it's not just like it looks like it's like copy-pasted something in. It's doing all these like changes. It's thinking about light and directionality. It's doing all these really advanced things to blend that new object into this existing photo. And for me, it was that moment where, you know, I've been preaching that like, you know, photo manipulation, we need to pay attention to these things for years and years. And this was one of the first times it was like, oh, yeah, this is exactly, I feel like what people who don't understand Photoshop think Photoshop does. Here it is. I mean, it just manipulation has never been this easy. Yeah, for a brief period in human history, since we could duplicate images we saw like photographs, we saw photos as truth. Does that all fall by the wayside now? So I've really been thinking about that idea of like, you know, we have, since this medium has existed for over 150 years, even though photos, again, they have been manipulated. It's not like the photo, there was a time when the photo was trustworthy. Even in darkroom practices, you know, there were ways to manipulate to composite photos, but it was rare. It was fairly rare. And we do have that assumed trust in the photo. And that's not just like a personal trust, that's built into our systems. You know, legally speaking, we trust the photo. In journalism, there's a lot of context in which that trust is super important. And I, I think with how advanced, say, Photoshop, these new tools that allow you to alter a photo, manipulate it, whichever verb you choose there, these will trickle down and they'll be introduced into cheaper mobile-based apps as usually has happened with Photoshop. And I think the ease with which we can manipulate reality is going to need to have some sort of reckoning. I'm not exactly sure what that will look like. You know, we're figuring all this stuff out in real time. We're dealing with this with ChatGPT and writing and authenticity there. But I think we maybe need to come up with some conception of this digitally altered, this digitally kind of mediated image as different from the photo that we've understood for decades and decades, for over a century. What are sort of the realms where it's really affecting us culturally? For instance, it seems like for a decade or two now, Young people have been super stressed by trying to compare their lived experiences of their own skin and images and look with what they see photoshopped online, right? So that's one way. Yeah. You know, the great thing I get to do is work with like, you know, 18 to 22-year-olds a lot every day as, as a professor. And so I, I see this kind of different engagement with this sort of idealized self, what scholar Meredith Jones calls a, a media body. It's almost like this separate digital you, maybe an avatar. We present this very glossy, very edited, very ideal, perfect version of ourselves online. And then we almost have to hide the real self or else, you know, the jig is up. You know, what I'm seeing more from students and kind of younger folks now is a wider understanding or, or just almost like different performances, maybe to put it in that term. You know, they'll use these technologies to put together this kind of like glossy, incredible self, but then there will be like schlubby selves and there'll be other selves. It's, it's almost this not mm -hmm. this sense of like, this is who I am and I have to achieve this perfection. But, you know, the idea that you would have this super edited version of yourself that you would post on social media and it wouldn't be like you're faking people out necessarily. There would be almost an understanding within that discourse. It's like, yeah, that's, that's, you know, that's almost like an artful presentation of yourself. You know, your students aren't just digital natives. They are, you know, next generation natives. They're TikTok and Instagram natives. And they never knew a world where it wasn't the rage to manipulate images. What do you see, not just in how they curate themselves, but what do you think their view is of a world where we can't trust the video or image necessarily? It's interesting. Like, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the app Be Real at all. I, I don't know if it's going to last any much longer, but, you know, it, it had a, a quite a, a popular run here over the past couple of years. And basically, it was an anti-Instagram and very popular among, you know, 16 to 25-year-olds, maybe even a little younger. And it was basically set up as a way to 
reclaim that authenticity, reclaim a sense of like a true self or to show a version of a true self, right? So it'll post once a day. You don't choose when to post. It gives you like a two minute time window. You don't know when that window is going to come and you have to post one photo, basically no filters, nothing like that. So all these kind of affordances built in. And, you know, the fact that so many of my students and so many I think younger people, you know, adopted this thing just speaks to this, I think, this interest still. I, I don't think there, we're in this like post-truth age, certainly visually either. But so in terms of the question of truth, I do see there's still an interest in preserving that truth, that the photograph as a representation of reality, I, I think that's still what, you know, we want the photo to be. I think that's still what makes it interesting as a medium. I, I think that will be preserved, but I think how it will be preserved, given how easy manipulation is now, that, that's, that's still more the question for me. We've talked about regulation of AI. Does photo manipulation need to be regulated, do you think, or will we come to that? I think we might come to a, a, a point when, yeah, we need to think about regulation of this in some ways. Or, you know, or just kind of considering almost having different categories, you know, just a way to have a sort of photo that we can verify as having been untouched, un, unedited in some ways. But, you know, now it's almost inevitable that, that there's some amount of alteration that's happening. So I think there's like two ways to think of it. One, it's an all or nothing way, which is this photo, we have to ensure that we have a category of photos that we can ensure have not been retouched in some way. Technically, I have no idea how you would pull that off. It'd be very difficult, but, you know, it's, it's worth thinking of. Then there's an other way, which is more kind of creating a, a clear definition over like what's too much. You know, we almost have to have some sense of like tracking what sort of effects, what sort of alterations have been applied to a photo. But if I were to say have a filter on, you know, I'm taking a photo of me in the studio right now, you know, and I had a filter that changed the saturation, right? I wouldn't say that's manipulating reality in a, in, in a deeply meaningful way, right? I, I, I'm not making my head bigger or changing the background. I'm not kind of changing the physical elements that are presented in the photo. So I think maybe drawing lines here when we talk about the preserving of the real, like what, so what do we mean there, right? What is, what is that kind of excess? What is too much? What is worth preserving here? And I think maybe, uh, you know, a, a closer consideration of that might be another approach to this kind of preservation of the photo as, as a trustworthy object. Are you also thinking that it could be mandated that elements be put into the software that would tag photos as layers of manipulation happen so that later it could be discerned what was original and what was altered? That is a way, like that, that, that exists, you know? So that's, that's, a, that's a system we can build out from that is a way of kind of tracking and inventorying what alterations have happened on there. So that's very because doable. Because in that sense, it wouldn't stop creative manipulation, but it would allow people to go back and, and discern what was original, maybe. Yeah. And I mean, I think that's the key point. It's not that, you know, like manipulating photos is fun. Like this is meme culture that like most of the internet is just like putting all of these, you know, a lot of times photos into a blender and, you know, all sorts of footage and creating these new wild amalgams out of it. And we don't, you know, we don't view those as distortions of reality. We don't view those as like dangerous. So, so we have that kind of eye test there to be like, okay, yeah, this is more dangerous. This is just people, you know, having a laugh, enjoying it. But for those cases, yeah, I think metadata could really be valuable in that way. And, and, and again, maybe making it a little bit more transparent, but yeah, the, the, the tool is there. The, the capability is there. And I think it, it, it could solve some of these issues we have in terms of like, oh, you know, where was this photo from? What, you know, can we trust it? What alterations have happened to it? Well, J.D. Swarzynski, this is fascinating. Thanks for talking with me and with good reason. Well, thank you so much for having me. J.D. Swarzynski is a professor of communications and digital studies at the University of Mary Washington. My next guest specializes in miniature set pieces. Think of tiny scenes, intricately constructed inside dioramas. She says it's a delicate process that requires a strong magnifying visor, tiny paintbrushes, and a good deal of focus. Rebecca Silberman is a professor of art and photography at James Madison University. Rebecca, what got you 
in your early life into miniatures and illusions? Well, we think of photographs representing a certain reality, but of course they're always miniaturized. But we still have these kind of mirror neuron experiences with them. Like we we feel stuff, we feel pain, we cry. But most of us don't experience a photograph as a, you know, a life-sized thing. So it really is sort of a weird sort of symbolic experience that we're having, but we take it to be reality, hardly distinguish it from reality, I would say, at times. So, you know, even if you think about places you've never been, you might feel like you've seen the Taj Mahal or the Grand Canyon, even if you've never seen them. So um, I think it actually even sometimes deceives us into thinking that we have had certain experiences that we haven't had. I'm especially intrigued by some current work you're doing with pictures that you call Hidden Mother Tintypes. So tintypes are um, from the late 1800s and early 1900s, and they're possibly a unique incarnation of photography that was developed in the United States. They're one-of-a-kind images, so it's the direct light onto a unique image. So it's, it's, an, it's actually a negative that looks like a positive. And just interestingly, I have a collection of these. They're mothers holding babies, but the mothers are always concealed. So I had one of these in my collection for the longest time, and I didn't realize it. But then I projected it life-size, and I saw that the backdrop seemed to be in motion and I realized, oh, there's somebody sitting back there, of course. She's super concealed in the sense that they actually just throw a blanket over her. Sometimes they throw, like, even a carpet, something very uncomfortable. Or they'll even put up sort of like a little backdrop. And she'll sort of—I have a few where she's peeking around the edge of the of the backdrop because she's holding it in her lap. So explain this. This is a picture they're trying to take of just the baby so the mother is not seen— but she's actually holding the baby, and they're draping something over her. Over her. And sometimes she's actually scraped away in the wet emulsion. So those tend to look you know, a little spooky, and that's how people sort of enter into it, is thinking mostly about the strangeness of these. But for me, you know, I feel like the time was right. I have a couple hundred of these to—I wanted to blow them up and put them on crepe de chine, so they're like these double-sided curtains— and I just feel like it's a little bit of a conversation starter for some of the stuff that's going on with women invisibility and sort of our rights and everything like that. I think it's a very subtle activism without being over the top. It just starts a conversation. Isn't this interesting that we have, you know, this sort of erasure of motherhood and erasure of women in this whole genre of photographs? Why would you wipe out the mother during that early period? Why wouldn't you show Madonna and child in an early photograph like that? Oddly enough, that's so rare to see that because I think it is the centering of the child, of course, and her job is more effective if she's sort of supporting the baby but not particularly visible sort of in all of her roles as a mother. When did you first start to take notice of these hidden mother tintypes? Well, I'm interested in 19th century processes. So I would project these to sort of show how you can read photographs, sort of the technical aspects of the photograph or the tintype. And that's when I discovered that, that I had this very interesting baby photograph with this moving textile, and I couldn't figure it out looking at it at two by three inches. But when I had it projected, I was like, of course. There's someone sitting back there, and she has this kind of carpet over her. <laughs> so it's a very heavy tapestry. Yeah. But enough to keep the baby still calm for, you know, anywhere from five to ten seconds. Good mommy. Yeah, good mommy. And, she, you know, I have this fantasy that she's probably, she's maybe singing or doing a nursery rhyme, and that there's more <laughs> unfolding that you can't see in the photograph. And, and so I think that's one of the things that I find so fascinating is that, you know, with that five or 10 seconds, you know there's something more unfolding than that split second of most photographs now. You've said that people who first developed cameras were actually associated with magicians also. How so? Well, so um, 
The first photograph was called the Daguerreotype, and Louis Jacquemont Daguerre was actually a showman. And so what he was doing is painting these big dioramas, which were these layered stage sets. And incredibly, people would just come into the theaters and nothing would happen other than that, you know, they would stage sort of lighting. But the way they were made was he would project the image large. And of course, you know, this is a well-kept secret of magic and early painting Vermeer is thought to have used a camera obscura for his paintings. What's a camera obscura? A camera obscura is interesting. It's it's fascinating that if you have just a small hole or aperture, any dark space can be turned into a camera. And so you can have this little room and have a scene projected into it. But what Daguerre was doing was projecting these onto backdrops and making a couple of layers of backdrops. So there would be scrim that would be translucent and then canvas. And then he would do lighting effects. So it would be like the sun setting and it would change the scenery. And people would just sit there and watch it like they're watching a movie. But they were so popular that he wanted to be producing them at a much faster rate. So he was working with these lenses and trying to make some sort of chemical formula that would make it so he didn't have to do the rendering. So he's trying to figure out a chemical way to stabilize what was projected. And he just stumbled upon the daguerreotype, actually. He, was ma- he had been making images, but he couldn't see them. They were latent the way if you go in a dark room now you have a latent image that you have to develop with chemistry. And so he accidentally discovered the daguerreotype. Again, he's a stageman, and a lot of these illusions were the early sort of magic shows. And there's still trade secrets. There's still a lot of them are trade secrets. What do you want your students to understand about illusion and photography? Well, on the way over here, I was thinking about how one thing that you totally miss in digital, there's so many, but one thing is just going into a, the dark room. We go into these completely dark film rolling rooms. And I, was, I always tell the students, for a minute, you're going to have like an after image of the room, sort of. I always used to tell myself, wow, I think I can see in the dark. But of course I can't. It's that your visual cortex just is not used to that kind of deprivation. So you go into this dark room to roll your film. Some of the students are spooked, but I'm like, stay calm. Watch what's happening sort of in your imagination. You cannot see anything. These are completely 100% dark rooms. But with me, I think I can see the room initially, but then the longer I'm in there, the more sort of my imagination takes over, I realize. So for instance, I see sometimes like an alley. It's so weird. I don't know why. But I didn't tell my students this, but one student, they you know, they keep journals. One student actually was drawing what she was seeing when she was in the dark room rolling her film. And she drew almost exactly what I see. Um, She drew sort of sparkles, but she drew like an alley. And I was blown away that she, first of all, that she thought to actually try to render in her journal that experience of being in total darkness. And then it was pretty much what exact, almost exactly what I experience. Anyway, my point is that that is such an an incredible experience, just even rolling film. The students are sometimes stressed out by it. But um, if you're calm, I just think it's really interesting to watch how your imagination kind of takes over. I think of all those people who once had the experience in a dark room of laying the paper in the tray and slowly watching the image take shape. That's that's something I don't know if we get that at any other time in our lives. I know. It's magical. So, And then also just the having to slow down. When my daughter was little and I would ta- be taking pictures, you know, with an analog camera, she goes, I want to see it. And I'm like, well, you won't see it until I develop the film and then I print the picture. You can't see it. It's not a digital camera. And so it just really slows you down and makes you way more thoughtful, I think. And, yes, I still feel that the first time you do a print, students just love seeing it come up in the developer. And it always kind of half gives me chills because I think it's kind of seems like magic too. Like it just seems like fiction the way it's an act of faith till you get to that point where you see this image coming up and it's just amazing. You were also working on painting miniatures. Tell me about that process and what you need to use to accomplish that. So when I'm making the objects that go into the dioramas, I wear magnifying 
visor. And when I made the stairway that that's half sized from everything else that's in there because it's way off in the distance in this one diorama, it's supposed to look like it's off in the distance, but that's a little bit of forced perspective. It's so small, and I'm wearing this visor, and I'm painting where I think the scuffs are going to be and where the hand marks are going to be. And, you know, it fits in the palm of my hand, but it looks full size when I'm working on it, or at least I'm fantasizing that I'm running up and down the steps and where am I going to touch the banister, and I'm putting in all these marks and everything. And then I take the visor off, and the thing, it's, like, so small. I was like, oh. If I mislay something when I have the visor on, if it's two inches away from where I think it's going to be, it's lost forever, (laughs) you know, so because you're just in a very different, very interesting space. How are your paintbrushes small enough to do that? Uh, That's just a delicate, delicate touch. I just have these very delicate paintbrushes. And um, for some reason, it's so gratifying. I just lose all sense of time, too. I get I'm so intense. But if somebody comes in, it's like waking me from a dead sleep or something. Like if my husband comes in, it's like I just jump out of my skin practically. So in other words, I am so present in this other sort of reality. Is there an alternate reality we feel when we are focused? I understand becoming so absorbed that you lose all sense of time. But is there also something about miniatures when we get lost in gazing on them that changes our perspective on time? Actually, there is. And um, this is in a book called On Longing by Susan Stewart, Narratives of the Miniature, the Gigantic, the Souvenir, the Collection. And the way they sort of discovered this was building architectural miniatures. When people have an architectural miniature and they're sort of arranging it and they're moving people around and they're trying to figure out how, you know, the space is going to flow and work. And they're asked later subjectively how much time did they spend. It'll be constricted according to the proportion. So this all points to the fact that our sense of time is scaled to us. It's not a constant. We think it's a constant. It's not a constant. I would love to see your miniatures. Where could I? So my website is Rebecca Silberman, Rebecca-Silberman with a B, S-I-L-B-E-R-M-A-N.com. And it's under the miniatures and bone dolls, these little puppets that I make as well. Bone dolls? Bone dolls. I call them bone (laughs) dolls, but they're, they're mostly like a type of epoxy that kind of gets built around bones to sort of, you know, just things that I pick up on walks. And they sort of have more of what I would describe as a meaning function than a structural function. So they don't even, they have attributes of people, but they're more intuitive, if if that makes any sense. These are on your website? They're on the website. Oh, yeah. I gotta see. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Rebecca, thank you for talking with me on With Good Reason. Oh, thank you so much. It was so nice to meet you. I really appreciate this. Rebecca Silberman is a professor of art and photography at James Madison University. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason from Virginia Humanities. Deep fakes have been around since the last presidential election in 2020, but the technology was pretty clunky, so they were pretty easy to spot. Casey Myers is a professor of public relations and director of graduate studies at the School of Communication at Virginia Tech. He says deepfakes will have a much bigger impact on the 2024 presidential race. Casey, you study something called deepfakes. That's not even a term that's very old. When did you first notice there were deepfakes? I say that deepfakes have become more commonplace in the last five years. It basically is a simulated reality where you take content, overlay it with video, and oftentimes create something that appears to be real, where someone is really saying something, but in fact, they're not saying that at all. And it's been a big issue within the last year or two because of the accessibility of deepfakes and how the technology has become more sophisticated and the barrier to access has become lower because it's become less expensive to produce. So it creates a lot of problems for people trying to figure out what is real and what is fake in this world of fake news. I think the first time I really paid attention to the nefarious possibilities where news stories about we can take video and an actor who is not Tom Cruise make him look and sound like Cruise in such a way that it's almost indistinguishable 
from the original. Uh, there's certainly been uses of that. If you have fans of The Sopranos, The Sopranos had an actress that died during the filming of that who played Tony Soprano's mother. And then they had her come back in a last episode, simulated her voice over a visual so she and the character of Tony could have one last conversation. And that was very expensive at the time that that was done. And if you go back and look at that episode, you see it's a little clunky, too, in the way that the way she speaks and the way she holds her head. But that was something done for entertainment purposes. And that was something that they wanted to do in order to create a final scene for that show. Now, fast forward however many years later, some 15, 20 years later, that technology is accessible to almost anybody to do and in a much better quality. And so now we can create these sort of experiences for people to see visuals automated and talking and, and moving around. And that does create certain ethical questions, you know, the ethical question of what's real and what's not real, but also the ethical question of how do you use someone's image in a way that is making them say and do things that they wouldn't normally say and do. And using that image oftentimes creates both a fake reality, but also a false impression of that person and what they are really like or what they're really saying. What are some of the more recent infamous examples of how people have manipulated media to detrimental effect? Well, we've seen uh, the recent example of the Pentagon photo that was altered that then created the impression that there was a tragedy that then resulted in a dip in the stock market. You mean it looked like somebody had crashed into the Pentagon? It, it did. It looked it looked like something that was was damaged, and then therefore looking at that picture, that became viral, and then there was a stock market reaction to that. Now the stock market is pretty sophisticated. Those traders are aware of what's going on in the world. They make trades based on that. So when you have that type of fake news creating real effects, that's a phenomenon that's very significant. And it demonstrates a couple of things. One, the nature of deep fakes and its relationship to viralness is important because a lot of successful disinformation deep fakes, one of the things that they're trying to do is to create traction for it to be viral, for people to have this sort of altered reality. But if the other component of it is that when you have a deep fake that's creating these residual effects, not just misperceptions in society or misperceptions of a reader, but you see something like the stock market reacts to it, it demonstrates that people are paying attention and these types of things have consequences. Do you think, let's say, in politics, in the coming presidential election, that there is a sort of slippery slope of uses of manipulating media in campaigns? Absolutely. And it doesn't necessarily have to be formalized candidates or campaigns. I think a lot of your disinformation that has come out politically has come out from not the party or not the candidate or not their campaign, but from third parties, maybe affiliated, maybe they are uh, activist groups, maybe they are people that live in other countries that create content that they hope goes viral within the U.S. or creates disinformation. And that is a real concern. And that is a strategy by some, not just in, in the sense of a political strategy, but there is such a thing as a disinformation strategy that people may use, that nefarious groups may use, hoping to create discord. And so I think that you're going to see that in 2024, not necessarily from campaigns proper, but from all different constituency groups or different individuals, some of which you're not ever going to be able to identify because of the way they operate online. One example I can think of recently is just something as simple as Donald Trump's mugshot. mugshot. So there were mugshots put out before there was a mugshot, and then there are mugshots put out and also altered after there was. Absolutely. Both from pro-Trump camps trying to get a message across and people trying to make him look silly. Well, the mugshot is an interesting thing and in that prior to the mugshot, there were simulated mugshots and even simulated sort of larger visuals, animated visuals than that. I think that the mugshot itself obviously was very intentionally posed because 
they knew the viralness of that mugshot and what that was going to mean. And then, of course, the Trump campaign and the Democratic organizations as well have used that mugshot for political purposes. But I think that the mugshot demonstrates something about viralness and content and knowing that this mugshot is going to be used, repackaged, retooled, redisseminated in a lot of different forms. And it's something that's going to be a part of our political culture and and kind of an icon of 2024 presidential campaign, I think. So that's something going on now, and it's fairly simple. What kind of deepfake are you fearing? The the fear of a deepfake is similar to what you mentioned earlier about the Pentagon photo. That is a deepfake that people believe in, that that they think that is true, as opposed to a deepfake that people look at and say, ah, isn't that funny? Can you believe that? Can you believe they have technology that does this? As opposed to something that says, oh, this has really happened. We need to make decisions predicated on this event that has occurred that has, in fact, not occurred. Or I'm going to make voting decisions based on this disinformation that is, in fact, totally fake and something that was cooked up by someone to create discord. That is the real trouble with deep fakes. Now, that's not to say that hasn't always been the problem in political realm, right? So you go back. 1800s presidential election, there's disinformation, right? You go to 2020, there's disinformation. It's just different technological tools. The difference with a deepfake is is that deepfakes are able to create a simulated reality. And, you know, we go in our culture has always been predicated is seeing is believing. I saw it on TV. I saw that happen. Well, now we can't necessarily believe that. Are there laws in the book now that could protect us from harmful deepfakes? Well, there are laws that have existed prior to deepfakes that would address it. So like defamation law would certainly address certain things. If the deepfake were to create reputational harm, you would have issues of appropriation of image. You could have issues of false light. Those are all torts that have existed for decades, if not longer, within American law. Now, in terms of regulating deepfakes itself specifically, there are those that would like to see something like that come about, particularly in campaign content. At the same time, just because something is a deepfake doesn't mean that it's unprotected speech. It could be fully protected political speech. You know, if I have a a visual, if I have the Trump mugshot, for instance, and I want to create some sort of political commentary around that mugshot, and I'm doing it, let's say, in however form I'm doing it, online, in person, that has some level of First Amendment protection. So you do run afoul if you write a law that is just sort of like we're banning deepfakes, could be an unconstitutional law. How do we protect ourselves from being gullible and duped by deepfakes? I think one is to recognize that this exists. So a lot of things that we have now in terms of technology is that like a deep fake, people are aware, but maybe they're not not as aware as they should be. You know, go and look and, and see what's out there in terms of disinformation, how sophisticated these deep fakes can be. And that is sort of a self-guard in a lot of ways into making sure that you're verifying what you're seeing. And so seeing is not believing necessarily. Seeing plus verification may equal believing. So that's one way. Another way is is to where do you get your information from? So do you get your information about the news from Instagram? And a lot of people probably listening to the show would say, no, I don't do that. But there's a lot of people that do. And if you're getting your sources of information from social media platforms, probably should verify that. You should also look at, like, what platforms are you getting your information from? Are you getting it from a news source? Are you just getting it from an individual? Are you getting it from some sort of anonymous-looking site that has one video post? I mean, those are all things that you have to to look into as part of that verification process. Are you seeing this somewhere else? Is this video just on one channel or is this across the news? And, you know, those types of things can help people make a decision if what they're seeing is real or what they're seeing is fake. And maybe don't trust digital media as much as you previously have. So a lot of people... They go online. They may be very savvy digital natives. They may be using a lot of social. They may be very good at it. 
but the are, but what we're talking about is a processing and a recognition and an ability to analyze. And so that takes a different skill set than just being, you know, savvy online. Do you think there's a particular demographic group that is vulnerable, especially to deepfakes? Well, it's interesting. So some people would say the demographic group that would be most vulnerable would be older people. Because why? Well, because they're less used to seeing this reality. They're, they're online less. Maybe they're less savvy in a digital sphere. I would argue that an older demographic probably has a little bit more skepticism than a younger demographic. So it could actually be younger demographics that are more susceptible because they're online, they're online and physical life sort of merge in a way that older people just don't. And they may be, because they're constantly processing the information that's online, they may be more susceptible. I think everybody is a target in this kind of thing. Nobody's immune. But in terms of being aware, a healthy dose of skepticism is something that I think really can benefit all. Casey Myers, thank you for sharing your insights on this on With Good Reason. Thank you. Casey Myers is a professor of public relations and director of graduate studies at the School of Communication at Virginia Tech. The ability to see has been one of the senses that distinguishes living organisms from non-living things. But computers have recently gained sight as well. Khan Iftikharudin is an electrical and computer engineering professor at Old Dominion University. He uses computer vision to help identify a deadly form of brain cancer. It's called glioblastoma. Khan Iftikharudin was named an outstanding faculty member by the State Council of Higher Education for Virginia. Khan, your specialty is computer vision. What is computer vision? Surely computers can't see. Right. Seeing is, I think, one of the most important sensing capabilities that we have. And for us to get any help from computer using computing devices, camera must be there. And we now know with uh, iPhone and any other phones and things like that, if we don't have camera, we really don't have any capability. So for these computers, these computing devices, to be able to see what we see and be able to be useful to us, we need to be able to get those images and be able to process them and then teach the computing machine to make some sense out of it. So in a very simple way, that's computer vision. How many senses do you think computers have? Right, right. So the vision, of course, with camera, and then audio, and then we have text, these language models with chat GPT and things like that. So these are more common. So audio, video, text, touch is another sensing model that people have worked for many, many years, especially in the biomedical domain. You use computer vision to diagnose the deadly brain cancer that killed Senators Edward Kennedy and John McCain. Tell me about that deadly brain cancer and how computer vision might have some impact on treatment. Sure. So take, for example, if someone has a headache and goes to a typical hospital or a clinic, first thing that they'll do is after some tests, most likely they're going to do MRI. Typically for each patient, the amount of MRI generated is, is, can be huge. So depending on different direction of the imaging and, and things like that, there will be multiple different volumes of images that will be generated for the brain. For example, if it is a brain tumor patient. And then these are slides. And at that time, it, it used to be radiographic slides, right? Now it's all digital. And then this huge amount of slides are then taken, used to be at that time, in a dark room where they display all these slides, a radiologist, and looks at all these different images. So we're talking about huge number of slides that this person, this radiologist, needs to look at and be able to zoom into a very specific part of the brain. And in most slices, there will be perhaps nothing unusual. 
and then only very few slices in the middle might have some information that they need to look at and from different types of volumes, different types of images that they collect. So we thought we should be able to bring computer to help. So we started looking at these images, working with these colleagues at St. Jude's. So our goal at that time was really to start it. The initial goal with uh, be able to triage these image slices, meaning most slices may not have anything interesting, interesting in the sense that be able to see if there is abnormality or not. And then only pull out the slices that should be viewed carefully. So that was the first sort of goal. But then we knew that we should be able to do more than that, right? It's not just flagging the interesting slices, images, but actually be able to look into those slices and be able to identify, quantify what that is, the abnormality. So the task was to really look carefully into this abnormal part of the brain, of the tissue, and try to figure out what kind of tissues that you're looking at. Because each of these tissues have not just physical meaning, but they have consequences. So how much time would you say now you've shaved off the process of examining an MRI looking for this particular kind of brain cancer, glioblastoma? In terms of time, most likely it will be similar timing with a trained radiologist. However, there is some other there are some other things that we need to also mention here. Given a single patient and the images that are taken, the MRI, if you give it to multiple different radiologists, you're going to come up with slightly different diagnosis in terms of how big this tumor is and trying to find the boundary. So the models that we develop, they are going to be as good as these experts are because we take their input as ground truth to validate our results. So once we do that, we have this consensus. So that's a benefit that what we offer is a consensus among multiple domain experts, right? So there are other tangible benefits. Way back when, when Ted Kennedy died from a glioblastoma, and more recently, when John McCain did, do you think there have been advances in this sort of computer vision that might have bought either one of them more time? Um, most likely not. Then what are we doing, right? Unfortunately, that's the state of the art for this type of tumor, this uh, very lethal, dangerous type of tumor that you're talking about. The typical lifespan is somewhere between a year to two years after the diagnosis. But what it helps, though, is the quality of life. It helps to know the probability of how long this patient may survive, how bad this tumor is, how lethal this tumor is. By knowing that, the doctors may decide what to do with the patient. Now, where it helps is to, and, and we have been already working on this and there are other groups, to sort of predict, given the clinical information of the patient, the imaging and all other information. And there is also proteomics and genetics and all those things that are gathered. And then based on that, we could actually predict the survivability of the patient. And then that information will help the caregivers, the doctors, to decide the course of action. You know, I recently saw the movie Oppenheimer, and I was struck by this excited, passionate culture of young physicists from all over the world working on physics and theoretical physics. And that was the thing that everybody gravitated to and was excited about. Would you say that same culture is happening now, but with AI? Uh, yes, yes, definitely. Uh, I have not seen that movie yet. Uh, I would like to. Yes, with chat, GPT, and all these generative models, there is this renewed, huge interest. Now, for the scientific community, we have been working on this for years now. But the recent successes had really brought this out in the public domain. And there is this interest. And uh, because of that, 
I think progress is, is going to be really, really fast track. And it's already been fast track. Um, however, with any new technology, it's not just a technology. I think this is going to be another huge paradigm shift, like some of the others that we had, like electricity and things like that. We'll go through a period of understanding exactly its impact and how to use a new technology and to get the benefit and also avoid the pitfalls. And eventually we'll get there, but it will take some time. Are you in the camp of people worried about what AI may do to humanity, or are you more optimistic? Uh, I think I'm more optimistic uh, because I, I believe that there are a lot uh, that we can actually gain from here, like any other new technology that we had had, uh, the humanity had uh, in the past. Uh, we just have to manage it, and we have to provide the appropriate guardrails. And um, I also believe some of this uh, thinking that uh, AI and things like this will take over is uh, premature. Khan Iftikarudin is an electrical and computer engineering professor at Old Dominion University. He was named an outstanding faculty member by the State Council of Higher Education for Virginia. With Good Reason is produced by Virginia Humanities, which acknowledges the Monacan Nation, the original people of the land and waters of our home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Matt Darrow, Lauren Francis, and Jamal Milner. Aviva Casto and Liliana Bukowski are our interns. Special thanks to Jenny Taylor for booking assistance. For the podcast or to comment, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.